0: And just one more time, uh, if you're here visiting with us, if you're our guest, we're just glad that you're here. Welcome to Cornerstone. It's good to be in the house of the Lord together. My name is Ben Griffith. I'm one of the pastors here. Would love to get to know you. And our text this morning in God's Word is found in Philippians chapter 1, uh, 3 to 11. You'll see that printed in your order of worship. I don't know about you, but I've never had a car battery die at a time that I thought, no, that's a convenient time for a car battery to die. Um, I've never jumped in the car, turned the key, and heard that clicking sound and thought, no, it's great. It's fine. I've got time for this. This is good. It's usually when you're late for an appointment or when when it's raining or it's 107 degrees in a hot parking lot or you've parked somewhere where another car can't get next to you. Uh, Maybe like... Maybe like me, maybe you've jumped off your fair share of dead car batteries, maybe your own or someone else's. And you know if you've done it before that um, there's only one thing that can bring life back to a dead car battery, and that is a battery with life left in it, right? Only a live battery can give life to a dead battery. It doesn't matter if you connect your car battery to the best Rolls-Royce carburetor or Mercedes in, you know, fuel injector or alternator or fan belt, doesn't matter what you connect it to, unless it's connected to a live battery, you're not gonna get back on the road. You could have the best, um, the best component parts of an engine underneath any hood in the world, but it's not gonna get my Honda going if my car battery's, if my car battery's dead, right? You have to hook it up to the right source. It has to be connected to the right source to keep going. That's true when it comes to car batteries, and that's also true when it comes to the Christian life. And that's, that's where Paul directs our attention in our passage this morning. This is Paul's opening um, his opening statement to this church in Philippi that we began the series in last week. He has already welcomed them and greeted them in the name of the Lord and said that he is God's servant and they are saints in the living God. And what he does next in our passage this morning is it's like he opens up his prayer journal and allows us to read his prayer journal for these Philippian Christians. He lets us see what he's thankful for for them and what he wants for them. So it's both thanksgiving and petition. But in both of these things, in in what he thanks God for them and what he wants for them, he tells them what the true source of their confidence is and their joy and their love and their hope and their growth in the Christian life. He wants to direct them and he wants to direct us back to the one true source of these things in the Christian life because he knows just like we know that we can be connected to the wrong source. Spiritually speaking, we can have our jumper cables connected to the wrong thing underneath the hood, and it looks good, and it's operating well in other respects, but it's not giving us any life. What are you connected to? What is your source for these things, Well, let's see what Paul writes to them and what he's writing to us this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that by your spirit you would now come and keep attending to us. Give us eyes to see. Open up the eyes of our hearts that we might see you and that we might uh, see what you want for us. Speak to us, O Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. So in this opening prayer of Paul's where he shows us his prayer journal for the Philippians. He tells us and he tells them four sources of the Christian life, four, four realities in the Christian life that it's possible for us to, to have alternate sources for, to, to, uh, for us to have uh, a bad connection to that's actually not giving us life and health as we should. And he's, and he's in all of these things, pointing us back to Jesus. The first way that he does this is he tells us that Jesus is the source of our confidence for the future. Jesus is the source of our confidence for the future. Right out of the gate here, Paul wants them to know where his confidence is, where his certainty is when it comes to their future as a church and where it comes to, to, to their future as individual believers. This is an uncertain time, an unstable time for this early church. Remember, they're a young church, a, fledg- a fledgling church. They've got problems. That's why he's writing to them. And like the hymn writer says, they have fightings and fears within and without, like everybody of Christ does on this side of heaven. It's, but it's especially true for them. And Paul tells them, though, that in the midst of all the uncertainty, in the midst of all the instability, remember, he's writing from prison, He tells him that there's one thing that he's not uncertain about, one thing that he's sure about, and he says this in verse 6, I'm sure, I'm confident, I'm, I'm, I'm certain of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Listen to what Paul just said. He says, when it comes to your future, when it comes to the race that's set before you, when it comes when it comes to you moving forward into a dangerous, um, uncertain future, I've got rock-solid confidence that you're going to endure, that you're going to run this race well and finish it well. And the source of my confidence in you is not in you. It's outside of you. He he tells them, you are not the reason that I'm confident in you. Jesus is the reason that I'm confident in you. The source of my confidence in your future is that God always finishes what he starts. He says, Jesus has a thousand, a thousand percent batting average when it comes to completing things that he begins. He's never quit. And that's where my confidence is. My confidence in you is outside of you. Now notice, you, you could hear that and you might think, well mate, is Paul insulting them? Um, is he is he trying to just rub in their face the fact that they're weak and human and frail? No, it, he's not trying to cut them down or insult them in some kind of way. It's not like Paul thinks that they're worthless nobodies who who have given him no reason to, for hope whatsoever. Because Paul, as we'll see, he loves these people deeply, and he has an incredible amount of gratitude for them and encouragement. In them. They have demonstrated in some real tangible ways that they love the Lord and that they're dedicated to Him. They have, Paul has ample reason to be confident in them, in their service and their sacrifice, their, their obedience and faith and their generosity. Remember, like we heard last week, they have they sent their best and their brightest to be with Paul in prison. And they they sent money that they couldn't afford to give to support him in ministry. This is this is a church that's doing good work. And Paul says, my confidence in you is not in your good work. My confidence in you is not in the good work that God's doing through you. My confidence in you is in the God who has started to do good work in you. In other words, his confidence in them is not in their faithfulness to God, but in God's faithfulness to them. Not in their commitment to Jesus, but in Jesus' commitment to them. His confidence, he says, is not in the strength of their grasp on Christ, but in the strength of Christ's grasp on them for the future. Jesus is the source of our confidence for the future because he is the great beginner and the great completer, Paul says. The one who always completes what he starts In the words of Hebrews 11, he is the author and the finisher of our faith. You know what this means? It means that Jesus has staked his reputation on your salvation. He's not only done everything that it takes to save you, but he will continue to do everything that it takes to see it through to the end and to see you safely home. He's staked his reputation on that think about the rock solid confidence that that gives you moving into an unstable uncertain future because you know just like just like me that anything can change things outside of you can change but you also know that you also know that you can change you also know that you are just as unstable and uncertain sometimes as your future is don't you we can fail, we can change, we can stumble and fall, and we have so much evidence to prove that. And in the midst of all the uncertainty that's outside of us and inside of us, the good news of the gospel is that when it comes to our salvation, we are not alone and we are not our own. The good news is that God is stubbornly, tenaciously committed to this process that he started that will culminate in you being made into the image of God. The good news is that this world and your life, your your story in this world, is is one big renovation project that Jesus is more deeply invested in than you can possibly imagine. This is a paraphrase of what C.S. Lewis writes at the end of Mere Christianity. He writes, This is why Jesus warned us to count the cost before coming to him. Because Jesus says, Make no mistake, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, this is what you're in for. Nothing less than this. Nothing less than that. And I'm going to see this job through. Whatever it costs you and whatever it costs me, I will never rest and I will never let you rest until that day when what I've done for you and what I've started in you is finished. I can do this and I will do this, but I can't do anything less than this. Jesus is the source of our confidence for the future, that he who began a good work in you will see it through. And this kind of confidence for the future, this kind of rock-solid confidence in the future that's rooted in Jesus and not not in our ability to endure, not in our own efforts or or ability to, to persevere, but in God's perseverance in the project that he started, this kind of confidence in the future, allows us to live with joy in the present. Confidence in the future allows you to live with joy in the present. present. And that's our second point. We've seen that Jesus is the source of our confidence for the future. Secondly, Jesus is the source of our joy in the present. If you're confident about where you're going, you can have joy in where you are now. It works like this. When you know what the outcome is, It changes your experience leading up to that outcome. Um, If you're a sports fan, you can relate to what I'm about to describe. Maybe you've been looking forward to the big game, um, and something happens on the day of it, and you can't watch it live, or you have to leave the game while it's in the eighth inning, or in the fourth quarter, or something like that, but... Don't worry, because you can. You know that you can record the game live. You can press pause on your TV, or you can DVR it, something like that, and you say, okay, I'm going to leave, or I'm not going to watch the game. I'm going to go dark, and I'm going to get off of Facebook. I'm going to get off of Twitter. I'm not going to talk to any friends. I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm not going to watch TV. I don't want to know how it ends, because I want to go back and watch the game live, right? And so you go through your day, or you go to your meeting, or wherever you're going, you avoid people, you, you don't talk to anybody, you don't wanna hear how it goes, and you're, you're crossing the parking lot, you get back in your car, and right as your car door is closing, a friend yells out at you, man, did you just hear how the Titans just lost. And it's spoiled. <laughs> you know the outcome, you just heard it, and you can't unhear it. Um, you know how it's gonna end now, and, and maybe you go back and you watch the game, And it could be the most exciting ending to a game in the history of that sport. But your heart's not even going to be pounding. And you're not going to be at the edge of your seat because when you know the outcome, it changes your experience leading up to the outcome, right? And that's what we see here at work in Paul's letter uh, to the Philippians. Because of his confidence in the future, because his confidence in the future is rooted in Jesus, he has access to a joy in the present that's also rooted in Jesus. And he invites us to share in that joy too. As we'll see throughout Philippians as we go through this letter, that this theme of joy and rejoicing is just woven throughout. It's beautiful. It's In four short chapters, Paul is always talking about joy. He's always talking about rejoicing. 16 times he mentions it in He says that he has joy even though former friends are causing him pain. He says that he rejoices even though his death is near. He says he has joy in his suffering. And in familiar language, he says, he he tells his readers, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. And even here in our passage, in verse four, he says that he's making his prayer with joy. As he thinks about what he's writing, he is overcome with joy. And y'all, this is so striking because he's writing from prison. (laughs) It looks like the wheels have fallen off of his ministry. It really does. There's nothing about his outward circumstances and nothing about their outward circumstances that would produce this kind of joy, this kind of rejoicing. You know, joy is only as good as its source. If you draw joy in life from something that can come and go, then that means that your joy will come and go. And just about everything on this side of heaven can come and go, can it? Our wealth, our appearance, our relationships, our physical health, our, our retirement, our vocation, our hobbies our hopes and dreams for the future, everything can change. And if our joy is rooted on something this side of heaven that can change, then that means that it's vulnerable and it's always under threat and probably producing a lot of anxiety in your life right now. But the kind of joy that the gospel invites us into, brothers and sisters and friends, it's a joy that is literally bulletproof. Because it's a joy that's not rooted in something this side of heaven. It's a joy that's rooted in someone on that side of heaven. It's joy that has its source in someone who lived and died again so that one day he could obliterate this line that separates this side of heaven and that side of heaven. It's joy that's rooted in someone who's one day going to make all things new by bringing heaven down to earth. And he said it's going to happen. The kind of joy that the gospel invites us into is joy that has its source in the one who has started that great renovation project outside of you and inside of you, and he's going to complete it. And when you know the outcome, it changes your experience leading up to the outcome. And the outcome that Paul writes about, we see it in verses 6 and 10, where he makes reference to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, the great outcome, he says. And what is the day of the Lord? It's simply the day when the future will become the present. The day when you won't have to hope for anything left because you'll you'll see it and you'll have it. The day when there will be nothing left to be made new again. The day when God's grand renovation project is over. The day when all sad things have come untrue. That's the great outcome. Spoiler alert, that's how the game ends, Paul says. And when you know the outcome, it changes your experience leading up to the outcome. It allows you to live with a kind of joy that that even the best days on this side of heaven can't add anything to. It allows you to live with a kind of joy that even the worst days on this side of heaven can't take anything away from. It's a joy that doesn't fluctuate like everything else in this world can, Because Jesus doesn't fluctuate. Because he can't fail. And our joy is rooted in him. He's the source of our joy for the present. Is that true of you right now? Or or have you connected yourself to a source of joy that could leave you dead and stranded on the side of the road? Jesus is the source of our confidence for the future. Jesus is the source of our joy in the present. And thirdly, we see that Jesus is the source of our love for other people. Jesus is the source of our love for other people. Here we focus on verses seven and eight, where Paul, it's beautiful. He just opens up his heart and starts gushing with this deep love and affection for these brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to what he says in verse seven. He says, I hold you in my heart. And then verse eight, he says, God is my witness. Listen to that. He's saying, I'm calling God to the witness stand because what I'm about to say, you're not gonna believe it unless God is my witness. God is my witness. He knows how I feel, that, that I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. That's incredible. And I want you to think about that language there not narrowly in terms of just the language of a minister expressing his love for his congregation, although that is true, Although there's so much that people in ministry and pastors can learn about um, their love and their relationship for a congregation, that, if, if we think about it narrowly like that, that means that you can walk away from this language and say, it doesn't really have much to do with me. I mean, that's sweet. That's sweet of Paul that he would think that, but I'm moving on. But I want us to look at it broadly in terms of what Paul is teaching us here about a Christian's love for other Christians. Not just a pastor's love for his people, but a Christian's love for other people. Um, And I want to approach it like this. Um, Think about this question. Where does love come from? Where does love come from? What's the source of love? Typically, we approach it like this. Two sources that we typically draw love from is either other people or in us, right? Right? either the other person that we're loving or in us. We can base our love on their merit, on, their, on if they're lovable, if they deserve to be loved, if they, if they deserve it. We can, we can draw our love based on if they deserve it or not. Or we can base our love on our, on our capacity to love, right? On if, we are lo- if we're loving, if we can generate and produce and manufacture enough love ourselves. But those two sources that we typically draw from in loving other people, those two sources can leave you dead on the side of the road in no time at all because because when we love other people based on their merit or based on our capacity, both of those things can dry up really fast. Because most of the time they don't deserve it and we can't give it, right? Or Or the reverse is true. Most of the time we don't deserve it and they can't give it. Um, human merit and human capacity are terrible sources of love. And the gospel offers us a third, a better, deeper, well to draw from that can't fail, a better source for our love for other people. And it's not their merit, and it's not my capacity to love. It's the love of Christ himself. Look at how this operates in Paul's relationship to these Christians. He says in verse 7, I hold you in my heart. Why? Because you're partakers with me of grace. That's why I hold you in my heart. He says, You've been given the same unmerited, free, undeserved favor that I've received. God has poured out his steadfast love on you just like he has on me. Jesus lived and died to save you by his grace, the same way he lived and died to save me by his grace. Here's what's happening. Paul is seeing these people not through his own eyes anymore. He's seeing them through the eyes of Jesus. He's borrowing God's opinion of them, and that opinion is becoming his own opinion of them. He's saying, because Jesus loves you this way, I do too. Because I love Christ and he is my sole treasure and source of my identity. If he loves you this way, then I love you this way too. If Christ sees you as his treasure, then I see you that way too. In in chapter two that we'll get to in in just a few weeks, you're familiar with this language of Paul inviting his readers to have the mind of Christ about them right? To think like Jesus, to love like Jesus, have the mind of Christ. And here we see Paul having the mind of Christ towards these Christians that he's writing to. This is what it looks like. He says, God is my witness that I yearn for you with affection that's not based on your merit, And it's not based on my capacity to love. I yearn for you with the very affection of Jesus Christ. That's a stunning verse. He says the source of my affection for you is not in you and it's not in me. It's in Jesus. I'm seeing you how Jesus sees you and I love you the way that Jesus loves you. I hold you in my heart because Jesus is holding you in his heart. Jesus is the source of our love for other people. Um, Brothers and sisters, listen to how good this is. This rescues us. It rescues us from loving people based on their merit and based on our capacity because both of those things can fail. Because both of those things can fail you. The gospel frees us to love people not because they're lovable and not because we are so loving, but because God is who he is. When we borrow God's opinion of somebody, we get to see them as they really are and love them that way. Let me ask you this. How how do you need to lean into this this morning? What relationship might be flailing or really suffering right now? Where are you struggling? Because whether you've used this kind of language or not, these two sources are running dry <laughs> their merit and your capacity to love. How this morning do you need to lean into the rich resources of the gospel that you can love someone with the love of Christ, with a source that never runs dry? The gospel connects us to this source of love that doesn't fail and it doesn't fluctuate <laughs> because God is love. Jesus is the source. Of our confidence for the future, he's the source of our joy in the present. Jesus is the source of our love for other people, and lastly, Jesus is the source of our growth in the Christian life. Jesus is the source of our growth in the Christian life here uh, we're, we're looking at the last three verses where in verses nine through eleven, Paul, he shifts from what he's thankful for for them to expressing what he wants for them and here he's He's praying what he wants for them. And he says, here's here's the outline. Here's the shape of the Christian life. Here's the trajectory of how I want you to grow. And this is true for the Philippian church as it is for us. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Notice that he begins there with love. He says that your love, he says not only that you may have love, but that it may abound and not only that it may abound, but that it may abound more and more. <laughs> Growth in the Christian life looks like growing in love upwards towards God and outwards towards other people. But notice that it's love coupled with wisdom. He says that your love may abound more, more, more and more with knowledge and discernment. It's not, it's not just blind, pure emotion that Paul's talking about. It's, it's the ability to love more and more Well, with wisdom. Sinclair Ferguson says this. He says that love and insight always need to go together. Love, to love, is to have the motivation to help. And discernment enables us to know how to help, what the real need really is. Love means that we have compassion, and discernment means that we can see the situation clearly and realistically. So growth in the Christian life, it looks like growing in love and wisdom. But notice that it doesn't stop there. It sets the stage for something else in verse 10. He says, so that we might approve what is excellent. So that we might approve what is excellent. He's talking about something that you're doing right now. Something that you do not as a function of being a Christian or a believer, but something that you do as a function of being human. To approve means to assign value to something. To approve of something means to make a judgment about the worth and the value of something. To approve means to say, this is right, this is, br- this is beautiful, this is supremely good and true. And we approve of things based on this interpretive grid that we, come at, that we come at life with. And Paul's saying, we're always approving of the wrong things. We come at things naturally from a wrong point of view. Imagine a block of concrete that weighs 10 pounds and a block of pure gold that weighs two pounds. And if you, if you come to, to make a value judgment on those two objects purely based on the interpretive grid on what weighs the most, then you're going to value that block of concrete a whole lot more than you're going to value that block of pure gold, even though it weighs less. We're always coming at things with an interpretive grid. And Paul is saying that as we grow in love and as we grow in wisdom, then we grow in approving what is truly excellent, valuing what is truly valuable, seeing true beauty for what it's worth. To value something ultimately. This is what we do as human beings. This is how God made us. To value something as truly valuable and then to orient our lives around that around what we treasure the most. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did not say, don't seek treasure. He said, seek the right treasure. Because he knows that God made us as treasure seekers to value something ultimately that we then orient our lives around. And growth in the Christian life looks like approving more and more of what is truly valuable, what is truly valuable. Excellent, what is right and good. And notice that this produces, he says, purity, blamelessness. And he's not talking about perfection, per se. He's not saying that you can reach a point in this life where you are literally perfect and you don't need Jesus anymore. Jesus is not interested in you ever reaching a point in this life where you don't need him. So purity and blamelessness doesn't mean perfection, but what he's talking about is sincerity. Purity and blamelessness means that the gap begins to close between who you are on the outside and who you are on the inside. The gap between, begins to close between who other people see you as and who you know you really are. Your public life and your secret life, that gap begins to close as you become pure and blameless. Where does all that come from? Where does all of that growth come in the Christian life, come from. Because, brothers and sisters, you could be really tired right now and really exhausted and cynical from having your jumper cables hooked up to the wrong source, trying to be more loving, trying to be more wise, trying to approve of what's excellent, and trying to connect who you are on the outside and who you know you really are on the inside. It can really be an exhausting hamster wheel if you're trying to grow in the Christian life connected to the wrong source. And Paul tells us in verse 11, all of this, all of these things, all of these areas of growth, they are the fruit of righteousness that come from where? From Jesus Christ. Through union with Christ. Through a living and abiding relationship with the living God who by his means of grace is shaping you more and more into his image and communing with you. (laughs) Jesus is the source of our growth in the Christian life. That's why Paul's praying for it in the first place. He's praying for it because he knows you can't do this on your own. If you are trying on your own, apart from Christ, to grow in these areas, you're going to fall flat on your face. Jesus is the source of our growth in the Christian life, and He's committed to it. The blueprints for you being made new in Him, for you becoming a new creature, the blueprints are sealed in His blood. Growth in the Christian life comes from the vine, and it goes outward to the branches. Jesus is the vine. He's the source of our growth in the Christian life and nothing else. So Jesus is the source of our confidence for the future. He's the source of our joy in the present. Jesus is the source of our love for other people, and Jesus is the source of our growth in the Christian life. That means, brothers and sisters and friends, that as we go from this place today, if we walk out of these doors and we're thinking, okay, I'm gonna do it. I'm going to do better. I'm going to be more loving and more confident and more joyful and and I'm going to grow. Then you might have missed it. Because what Jesus wants for you is to walk out of this place not with your eyes on yourself, but with your eyes on him. With his eyes on the true, with your eyes on the true source. Because his joy is in you. And he's more committed to you than you can possibly imagine. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you more and more open up our eyes to see you, to see you seeing us. And may the sight of seeing you looking at us as your treasure, may that more and more make make you our treasure. O oh Lord, keep us connected to the one true source of all of these things so that we might know the joy and the new life that you died to give us and that you will one day complete in us. And we pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.